Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each podcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, so today we have with us a dynamic speaker and a proven transformational leader and educator um, who ha- is a former award-winning teacher in the inner city of Chicago, um, a, a school leader recognized all over and currently a superintendent. So I'd like to welcome today, PJ Capozzi. Welcome, PJ. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing well and glad to have you. You know, as I told you before we even got started, you know, I, a lot of what you uh, said and written about, you know, for those of you listening in, don't know, PJ is a best-selling author. He's written eight books and uh, for a lot of uh, publishers, we're really privileged to have him with us today. He's been uh, featured on in the Washington Post, NPR, just to name a few. And so um, I'm glad and thank you, PJ, again, for taking time to come and share with our listeners, as you know, are um, mostly leaders in, in education, but also a variety of disciplines. So um, I, I really thought that you'd be great to have on for people to hear from you and some of the things that you've said. And I've, you know, I've heard you speak, I've heard, I've read uh, some of your work, and I'm really impressed by the things that you talk about, particularly with school leaders, uh, being able to build what you call and describe as a realistic optimism in their organization. Um, You know, I I believe now, if not more than ever before, this particular skill set is crucially important and, dare I say, imperative for leaders, um, uh, given uh, what we just went through. And I'm I'm speaking about it in the past tense intentionally, because I want, as much as anybody else, I want this behind us. But I just really believe that it's important that um, um, leaders are able to build a, a sense of optimism. And so I'd like to start first, tell us a little bit, you know, like how you got here, because I think it's really important for people to understand where you started, you know, as a teacher, and then the kinds of things that you saw, and that uh, really motivated you and pushed you to be the leader you are today first, because I know from my students, I hear a lot that I think they have in common with your story. So let's start first with your story, where you started and, and where you are now. Yeah, so I guess the origin of it is trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and and for me, school was always cool. Like I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like anything that defined me. Like I was a good student and I was involved, but um, I hadn't really thought of going into education as my, my life's journey or my life's calling. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I went from a kid that, and I joke when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, they're like, I got hit with every stick of the privilege tree. Like I, 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 I have every, every ounce of that. Um, and it was the first time in my life I really needed support. And all of a sudden I had teachers just kind of pick me up and carry me. And at that moment I said, wow, this is what I want to do. What they just did for me is what I want to do. And so coming from an upper middle class kind of privileged family, I kind of thought about like, if, if this is what it did for me, what could I do if I went and tried to support in some traditionally underserved areas? So the entirety of my teaching career was in Chicago public schools, um, which I loved. 
um, but it's also a great place to be from. Like there's there's some elements of, of what you learn there and you can take forward. And after, after teaching there and starting a family and, and wanting to settle down a little bit, uh, I moved into administration and I went into Rockford Public Schools, which at the time was the second largest urban um, school system in the state of Illinois. Sure, sure. I started, you with Rockford, yep. Yep, so I started there as an AP. Um, and in about two years, I decided I was gonna, you know, try to get back home to the suburbs and try to figure out my life. On my journey to back home, there was a, every time I drove home, drove past a sign that said Oregon, Illinois. Had never been there, never seen it, never thought of it. And then when I was looking for jobs, they had a principal job open. And uh, I was 27 years old, so I probably wasn't ready. Um, <laughs> but my, my, my principal encouraged me um, at the time. And so I put my name in the hat and uh, was lucky enough to get selected. Um, later came to find out I was the second choice, but I was the chief candidate. So they went with me, um, which, <laughs> which is, is humbling. And uh, in my first year as a principal, um, I ended up uh, turning over about 20% of my staff. So if you think about that in light of how schools typically operate, completely kind of abnormal. And what I did is I unintentionally, out of naivety um, and enthusiasm, uh, kind of destroyed the culture and the climate of my building. And um, what I realized, I, I remember sitting very vividly, I was sitting on the, the park bench outside of our school one day, watching the kids just kind of hang out and file out. And like, nobody liked me in the building. Like it was cold. Like I'd walk down the hallway, doors would slam, you know, like I, I swear, like an email would go out, like the bears out of the cave, right? Like, and, uh, and they, they would want to avoid me. I just kind of remember thinking like, I was 28 years old. Like yeah. I got 35 years left of this. Oh, wow. Like, is, yeah. is this what I want to do for the next 35 years of my life? Do I want to be this guy? Yeah. And everything I had done was correct in a textbook, right? Like I, I had made all the appropriate educational research-based decisions. Yep. In that moment, I realized I wasn't leading anything. Um, I wasn't changing hearts, changing minds. And in that moment, I kind of realized like, if I want to do this and I want to have fun with it, um, and I want to actually have sustained success, it's about people. Um, and I, like in that moment, in that day, kind of everything shifted for me. And I had to figure out how to become a leader. And it's funny because I think like the entire, my entire life, people had said, oh, you're, I won every leadership award in high school, right? And in college and all these things, everyone called me a leader. And all I did was I was able to get stuff done, but I wasn't leading anything. Um, so kind of at the age of 28 or 29, I kind of figured out I needed to really learn what this leadership thing was if I was going to try to do it. And from there on, um, it's kind of propelled me. We were able to turn around that school in three years and go from the lowest performing in our county to one of the highest performing in the country. And then moved over to the neighboring district where I took over in chaos. We, I was the fifth soup in three calendar years. Wow. Um, wow. And so um, it was a low bar, right? Like if I didn't, you know, mismanage money or sexually harass anyone, I was doing a good job. So it was, yeah. it was an easy, bar. it was an easy yeah. bar to jump over. Sure. Um, and from there on, just been able to like continually practice, right? Like that's kind of the way I, I view it. Like I'm much better than I was five years ago. I'm not where I want to be yet and continue to grow. And I've had the opportunity to kind of write and speak along the journey. Um, as I've learned more and tried to help other people do better themselves. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds great. Um, you know, couldn't help but notice your, and, and you spoke to this, your uh, meteoric rise to leadership, so to speak, um, at the age of 28, becoming a principal. Um, you, you know, something you said certainly resonated with me. I, I, I remember um, the assistant principal in my high school said to me, and I, I think about it all the time, he said, you know, the toughest thing you'll have uh, in your life is deciding what you want to do. And I, I know that you were probably the same person who was like, you know, whatever you set your mind to, you did it. 
and you know you you made it work and i and i was uh pretty much the same way but i think about what you said um because i think at some point um unless you know you you know you are a narcissistic leader um you are someone that is reflective on how you are influencing people and motivating them and you realize at some point in your career that you you when you encourage people from the heart um, that they they are more productive, more to me, more creative. They feel, you know, they don't operate as a place of, from a place of fear. They operate from a place of, you know, I, I, I never will forget I had a guy um, who was a student worker at the time. He's an older guy, but he, he had come back to college and he was uh, doing, you know, work study. And one day he came in my office kind of marveling at, um, you know, my leadership style. And so what he said to me was, he said, wow, he said, you know what, these people in this office, they're not afraid of you. He said, but they don't want to disappoint you. Right. And he was like that to me, I've never seen anyone lead like that. It's always oh, the boogeyman is going to get you. And so I, I really appreciate you saying that because for a lot of us, you have to learn that because if you think about it on TV, right, you see all this stuff about, you know, the boss and, you know, you're supposed to do this. And remember, I won't call the name, but there was a, a person who used to have a show where he would say, you're fired. You know, and and all of that was glorified in terms of leadership. And so it's great to hear you say, one, that, you know, you reflected on it. And two, you made a decision uh, to be somebody different, even if it were for, was for, you know, uh, selfish reasons. Like, I don't want to spend my career being that guy. Right. So thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um you know, so which so, so then you you moved through and you were a principal. I, I mean, I love the principalship. And then you so now you're in the role of a superintendent. Uh, how did you? What made you decide to go from you know having a real locus of control to this big nebulous? I mean, it doesn't even matter what size district. But when you go into having multiple schools, you're in a whole different. Uh, sphere. So what made you decide you wanted to be in that area? So I'd say two things in particular. One is that I had a wonderful coach and mentor as a boss. Mm. Uh, and so I'm going to say his name, shout him out. Hopefully he's listening, Tom Mahoney. Um, and he, and Godfather, my son is how much I, I respect and love him. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know him until, you know, he became my boss. Um, but he allowed me to run my school like a district. He's like, you're going to be a superintendent someday. So he gave me all of the responsibilities a superintendent would have in terms of autonomy and hiring and finance and all of those things so that I could um, kind of have my own little leadership lab um, in terms of uh, running a building. But when I internally, when I figured out um, that I wanted to be a soup as much as I wanted to be a principal, and I, I will say this, the best day of a principal is still better than the best day as a soup. Like, and, so, and, I, and I love my job. And, and there's lots of things about the soup job that I think it, you know, are unmatched when you rival with the principal, but a good day as a principal is a, a good day. I mean, you're with kids and it's, it's a different feeling, but when I started to get the same, for lack of a better word, like when you have that meeting with a kid and you connect and, and you are able to help usher them or move them forward 
like I don't know if there's another feeling like it. And so like high is the wrong term, but there's a there's a certain type of vibe to that, right? Mm-hmm. And when I started to get those same vibes, when I'd have the difficult conversation with a teacher and help move them along in their career journey or help them see themselves for better than they saw themselves for. And I started to have that same rush, rush is probably the best word, yeah. Um, yeah. When, when working with adults that I did kids, then I thought, okay, maybe it's time to scale it up and have, have more adults in my stead um, that I get to serve than, than just you know, running a, one building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there are a lot of people who, who say, you know, once you become the superintendent, like it's, it's the loneliest job um, you know, that they could ever imagine because, you know, you, you are making, um, a lot of decisions that impact people. And sometimes they're just not popular, uh, choices. And so, yeah, for sure. So I want to get into a little bit, talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, optimism, building optimism. And so what I, what I walk away with in your description of what you try to do, two things, I'm a person that really pays attention to words. So I think you probably were kind of deliberate and intentional how you said it. One is that you said build. And so that that's something that you intentionally do. You build something. So from a leadership perspective, you set out to make people optimistic. So I think that's the first thing to point out. And please, by all means, I'd love to hear you expand on these. But the second thing that really struck me was the intentional use of realistic optimism, not just kind of some cultish uh, fantasy of our organization, but realistic um, expectations to set for people and so forth. So say a little bit more about what your thoughts were about first, just the idea of building realistic optimism. So I'll touch on two points that you said and then kind of get into the description. The, the first is um, Todd Whitaker is kind of my, um, like the, my godfather in the business of writing and speaking. And one of his famous quotes is always, if the leader sneezes, the whole building catches a cold. Um, and so I kind of feel that way. Like, so in what I found in myself during the the course of the pandemic is that there were times where I was down, where I was mm. beaten up. Sure. Um, Illinois was a state where there was, I know this happened nationwide, but some, there was just kind of carte blanche legislation passed, but like, there's a lot of debate around masks in Illinois. Yeah. And so we were just getting crushed and every day was, was a battle. Right. And so I realized that I was not, I was not in a good place. And if I'm not in a good place, my people aren't in a good place. So, so when I'm talking about building, a lot of it started with looking in the mirror and understanding that if I'm, when I sneeze, the, the whole district catches a cold. So if I am not intentionally trying to see things for greater than they currently are, then how can I possibly expect anyone else to be, to be going through in, in doing that, that same thing? And so for, for me, that's kind of the, the leadership philosophy that I, I carry with always is that my job is to set kind of floors in terms of this is our minimum expected performance behavior our culture but never to set ceilings and so when we talk about you know the stereotypical bad boss I think what they tend to do is see people for who they are and I think like if I had a gift in education I tend to see people for greater than they currently are Mm -hmm. um, to help them see that along the way Um, the second thing is I love Twitter now I love Twitter because I'm a sociology guy So I think Twitter is a beautiful sociological experiment. So 
I feel as though by paying attention to teacher Twitter and edu Twitter, mm-hmm. I get a decent sense for where the masses are. Now, I think everything is exaggerated. So I'm not telling you that it's accurate, right? Like I'm telling you, but it's a decent. And so what teacher Twitter told me and my, my teacher friends and, and our staff that have now gotten to know me and trust me is that like toxic positivity was a negative, was a, was a big detriment at the beginning of the pandemic. And so when I'm talking about realistic optimism, there's a big difference between toxically positive and acknowledging, hey, this is hard right now. And it was hard, but hope is a heck of a drug, right? Like, and if we can sell hope and we can see it, and like you said at the beginning of the podcast, like you're just not going to, you're going to acknowledge and try to move forward, right? Like at some point, like I said that to my leadership team quite a bit in the, in the course of this year, it's like, it's hard right now. But if I waved a magic wand and took all of the pandemic stuff away, is it really that different? Like, couldn't we still be going really hard? Couldn't we still be doing good things on behalf of kids? Couldn't we still make, try to make adults excited to be here? And so do we have some building blocks and some things that we can do intentionally to be brokers of hope? Because again, if we're, if we're the broker of hope, then perhaps our teachers become that, that model of hope as well. And so um, with that philosophy and just having conversations um, not only with my staff, I'm fortunate enough to do adjunct work for lots of different universities. So I get like a, a really captive audience of teachers that are actively trying to become administrators. So they, they're seeing the world from kind of both lenses and giving some really interesting real feedback that no matter how close I get with my staff, they probably aren't going to give me um, to kind of get a good vibe and, and feel for what the profession at large is going through. And so that when I write and speak, that's where I'm, that's my audience, right? Um, it's not how I'm feeling. It's how my people are feeling. It's how the, it's how the general um, consensus of how people are feeling. And then you try to, to address the things that are of concern to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very interesting. And, um, you know, you said a few things that I'm, I'm uh, I want to hear more about, particularly some examples. I, I, I'll start with what you said first was that, um, about toxic positivity. Uh, Give me some examples of how um, that appears in an organization where, um, and I'm assuming the leader demonstrates toxic positivity behaviors, or maybe there's a leadership team. What does that look like? What might that be? So the two things that I hear most when people talk about toxic positivity when I'm doing consulting work is this, is that one is that there's zero acknowledgement of how difficult the work actually is. And, and so like, I think there's lots of work that we can do in schools and like at all levels uh, and how to make things better. And maybe the system's a little bit broke and we need to do, it. but like the, the average work that the average educator, and when I say educator, I mean, everyone involved in schools from bus drivers to support staff to teachers, it's hard. So like being just positive all the time and never acknowledging how hard it is yeah. or your mistakes or the things that the board is pushing down or the county or the state or whatever it is, um, I think runs counter to that. The other thing with toxic positivity is the, the volatile leader, right? So the one that is, is negative and harsh for four days a week, then three days in a row is exceptionally positive. Um, that, that positivity actually has a negative. It's not like, oh, well, finally he's in a good mood. It's, it has a, a much different, um, impact and so yeah for, for us like that's the thing like I, we, slow and steady wins the race if we're continually optimistic we're continually hopeful we continually acknowledge that it's hard but we are capable um, one of our t-shirts that we have in our district is if not us who mm-hmm. 
if not now, when, right? So we have to have hope because we are, you know, we are the people with the privilege and the opportunity and the responsibility yeah. of growing yeah. the next generation of people to run our communities and our, and our country and our states. Um, and so I, there has to be hope, yeah. Um, yeah. but being constantly positive and not acknowledging the struggle, I think as a leader does not help you push your people to the level that they probably need to be pushed in order to get the hard work done. Sure. You know, um, as I listened to you talk, you said things like, um, you know, it's important for us to be brokers of hope. And, you know, I've heard, and I've also, you know, I've given keynotes and where I've, I've said to people, um, what I want for you, particularly in, in leadership though, is for you to have a ir irrational sense of hope. You know, and and I've had people say to me, you know, oh, that was powerful. That's great. Uh, all the things you said, uh, you know, really motivate me. How? You know, so, you know, you say we must be brokers of, of hope. So tell me, what, what are the things that leaders, and I'm talking about at a variety of levels, but I first I'd like to hear at the school building level, but how, how do they do that? I mean, there are, and I, and I what you've said, particularly around, um, you know, like, go, as we say, going hard in the paint for kids and families anyway, anyway, you know, in spite of all the things that are happening, doing like being really aggressive um, to, to um, get good results. Um, but, but when you say things like, we must be brokers of hope. How do we accomplish that? So for me, I look at the individual level, which I know is going to be counter to a lot of what we talk about in schools, right? Because we're talking about moving the needle. For kids, yeah. if we're talking about hope. To me, that's an individual manifestation of emotion, right? So when, I, when I'm talking about trying to work and build hope, I get reminded of the Simon Sinek quote, like people don't get burned out because of what they do. They get burned out because they forget why they're doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for me, hope is helping people. Like, one of the things I say in almost every, like I fit it in every keynote, regardless of what topic it's in, you know, it's one of my go-to lines is essentially that like, like nobody thinks back to the average teacher that they had growing up and said, I want to be like that. And nobody, like nobody decided to go into this profession. I shouldn't say nobody. The vast minority of people went into this profession to be okay at it. People went in here to be game changers and to be life changers. And so for me, it's about, all right, how do I tap back into that? Because once People know that, hey, I believe you can be greater than you currently are. You might be stuck. You might be down. Let's work through it. And let's figure out. How to me, that's where hope is born. Like, so I can set realistic targets for them. And I can put data on the wall. And I can provide all the training and support that they need, which I think all matters. But to me, when I'm talking about being a broker of hope, it's at the individual level, which means I need to know my people. Right? Like, so this is like the difference in, in me as, as a leader at 41 compared to a leader at 27. Sure. There, there was research that said, this is how you fix a school. I fixed the darn school, right? That's different than saying, hey, I've got 260 adults that I get the privilege to serve. If I can figure out with at least my 18 that are my direct reports and I know them deeply and intimately so that I can press the right buttons to move them forward every day, keep them optimistic so that they can hit their 16, 18, 20, that's how we build collective hope. Yeah. So for me, yeah. I know a lot of people when they talk about hope, they're going to talk about like, hey, we got to have these realistic goals. All of that's part of it, right? Like we can't do all this work at the individual level and then go like no child left behind and say 100% of kids are meeting standard next year, right? Like that, that's not going to do it. But for me, hope starts at the individual 
level and based on those types of relationships. Mm. Yeah, what you said, it goes, it is really um, consistent. What, you know, we try to teach in our program um, at Columbia, we, you know, we talk about things like um, understanding adult development too, you know, where um, you, you don't have just, um, a group of teachers, you know, no, no different than if you had a span of students at K-8 school um, versus a middle school, you wouldn't just say they're students and you treat them all the same way. You know, you really have to know people. You have to understand where they come in as a 23-year-old and where they might be as a 62-year-old in the classroom, right next door to one another. You don't, you know, one size fits all doesn't work. But I, I think I do want to underline what you said about knowing them. And, I, you know, I, there's so many things that I've tried to do with groups, and maybe some of them are leadership groups. And I try to impress upon them that I'm not saying that, you know, come on, hang out, go have a beer with people if that's not your thing. But I am saying that, you know, human beings are social creatures and you have to understand that people have to trust you. They have to respect you um, for a lot of what we're talking about to to work, you know, particularly around trusting you enough to say, okay, he is hopeful and optimistic and for that to impact other people they have to trust you believe you respect you i mean that's kind of the those are the, the kind of the undergirding um uh, relationship ties that have to be in place for you to be successful and so i i think that's that is critically important and i think not enough of that happens um now as a superintendent just as an aside do you do you find when you're saying things like you have to know your staff, do people come to you also and say, well, how do I do that? Because a lot of times people do think they know how to get to know people. And I know that previously, not in my current role, but previously at other universities, we didn't do that well in terms of showing people how you make connections as a leader. What advice do you have for leaders around, you know, if that's just not your thing, how do you make it? a part of your repertoire to make connections to people because you said it was very important. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I'm a, a dramatic introvert by nature, mm -hmm. right? Like, so speaker that gets on stage in front of 2000 people and loves it, but I don't want to like, if I have to do a meet and greet afterwards or like a book mm -hmm. signing, like it's like terrifying to me, mm -hmm. right? So the first thing I always say is like, if we want to figure out how to make connections with other people, the first person you need to connect with is yourself. Janelle might sound corny, but like, for me, it's like a journey in self-awareness, right? Like, so what is it? How do I get to know myself well enough so that I can impact and support other people? Mm -hmm. And then the, like, when you talked about, like, how do you get people to trust you and that, that element of doing it? Like, for me, like, trust is always a, a manifestation of two things. What do they believe that I'm competent, right? And do they actually believe that I care? Mm. And so um, for me, like, the, the greatest kind of feather in my cap that I would say, like we have 16 person under my draft report, my leadership team. Um, we have had one person voluntarily turn over in a decade. Wow. That's so that's like, amazing. so right. And, and I mean, we, and that person left for a significant race, right? Like, so that was what it was, we couldn't be competitive, right? In the marketplace. So, but good for them. Um, other than that, the only person that's left is, was, was by death, unfortunately. And so we've been really, really consistent. And so like, 
like I end every meeting, like we have our leadership team meeting tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. I ever end every meeting with, I tell my level and I do, right? Like now, did that happen in year one? No, would it seem really weird if I did it in year one? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I know when they're going for their mammogram, I know when they had a fight with their wife, I know like it's happened over time, right? Yeah. Um, and if you would have told me at 27 that I would have cared, and I, I mean this sincerely, like I just didn't care. Like, mm-hmm. like to me, my mindset was you got a job, come to work and do your job. Um, and now I realize like, and I think about it now, like when, if I have a fight with my wife, which thankfully we don't have very often, but if I have a fight with my wife at 7 a.m., my 7.30 meeting sucks. Yeah. And I'm a growing adult with a every degree possible and a million coping mechanisms. So when I extrapolate that to, to you know, to kids and to other adults that might not be yeah. tuned with their self So like, we have to be aware of that, those things and, and, and curious, right? Like that's another, like, like, am I sincerely curious about why people are doing certain things? Mm-hmm. Because when we don't have genuine curiosity about why humans are behaving in the way they are, then what we do is assume. And as soon as we start to assume why people do so, then all of a sudden we're assigning all, all kinds of things to them that may be true or may be untrue. And then we try to start fixing things that may not even be the problem. Yeah. And then it gets us down this, like it's leader, we get down the, you know, a leadership detour. It might take us literally months or years where we're fixing the wrong problem. Um, and so for me, like it's, it's just about, it's internal first and it's old school cubby, right? Like internal victory before external victory. Yeah. Once I get to know me, I can get to know you. And so for me, like, in, in becoming a better leader, the number one thing that I did was get to understand me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and that's a never ending journey. It's like a lit, an onion with 7,000 layers. Like every time I think I get, understand myself, I find myself confused again. Um, but if that's for me, then think about how much work we have to be doing with our people in order to support them, in order to motivate them, make sure that they believe that I care about them so that they can stay curious and serve their people. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely uh, a great conversation. And I know it's, we're already over time and I, you know, we could go on for forever talking about this, but I, I do want to thank you for coming on and sharing uh, your wisdom. This conversation has certainly added to me today. Again, I'm just so fortunate to be able to talk to people like you. I've learned a lot. Um, and um, I'm sure the listeners are going to start Googling and, and looking for you. Um, so tell me, um, and, and it, I know how to reach you, but um, how might people, um, you know, what are your books? Where can they find, um, um, you know, your latest book and, and, and any Twitter handles, Facebook names, what have you, uh, please share them because I'm, I'm sure they're going to start looking for you. Um, I, I know you have talks that are out there and I've heard you uh, speak. So please share those. Sure. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, so first name, last initial. So we see this at Gmail is the easiest way to get a hold of me if you ever want to connect. Um, I'm on pretty much every social media platform at M-C-U-S-D soup. Um, and I'm one of the people that go S-U-P-E. It's like a big divide in the superintendent community, what the appropriate <laughs> abbreviation is. Um, but I'm an S-U-P-E guy. So I'm M-C-U-S-D, S-U-P-E. I'm pretty much every from Insta to Twitter to whatever you can, you can find me there. Um, and then my website is just my name, pjcaposi.com. You'll see a ton of speaking things about the things that I do. Um, in terms of other places, uh, the Amazon author page has all of the books uh, that I've, I've written in a variety of different topics, some by myself, some with really esteemed authors, some with 
some of my best friends, all of the, like, that's an interesting podcast, like how to write a book with a friend and stay friends. <laughs> and stay friends to the end. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> the heart, right? Like, it's like, hey, can the book be readable? And can you stay friends? You get those two things going like that you want. Um, and then the last thing is, if you go to the TED website, you can check out a TED talk I gave on um, how I imagine the education world could or should be changed in the next five to 10 years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I'll be looking out for more from you and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again, maybe even work together. Um, but until then, go well, stay well. Thank you so much. Loved it, Brian.